Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see you. Uh, We are continuing in our series uh, called On Mission Together. Each week, we're looking at a different component of our church mission statement and then sort of focusing in on the the text, the biblical text, that sort of gives these ideas their their meaning and their root. Um, And so every week, we've kind of been in a different spot. We started by talking about the idea of being empowered by the Spirit. We talked about what it means to be a loving community. We talked most recently about being united in sacrifice, that we're not called to be united in our individual tastes and preferences, but that we're called to lay those down, to take up our cross for the sake of community and the love of other people. And then this week we're talking about living like Christ. But I think it would be helpful, and we've done this every week, we've been in the series, to kind of read this together. So it's, uh, it's on the banners, uh, they'll put it on the screens. I'd love it if you join me as we read this mission statement. We're just kind of trying to get it in our bloodstream, you know what I'm saying? So it, it becomes natural to us. Let's read it together. It says, empowered by the Holy Spirit... E.V. Free Fullerton is a loving community, united in sacrifice, and living like Christ for the glory of God. You know, it's interesting, this idea of living like Christ. Realistically, that kind of is a summary for the whole rest of the thing. You know what I'm saying? Because Jesus himself was empowered by the Spirit. Jesus certainly created a loving community around him, so he's incredibly loving. Jesus was the best example of sacrifice and the way sacrifice unites. He died in our place to rescue us from sin and death, and he certainly was doing everything he did for the glory of God. So in some ways, uh, you, you could say all of these can be summarized simply with living like Christ. But as elders, when we were putting together this mission statement, we felt like it was important to be able to hone in on a couple of specifics for the sake, not just of saying, hey, why do we exist? Why is the church here to live like Christ? But exactly what does that mean? How does it happen and what is the end result? So today, as we look at living like Christ, we recognize from the get-go that that really is what discipleship is all about, right? That Jesus set us a model. He came to the earth, he drew people to himself, and he made disciples out of them. And the, the word discipleship is kind of a weird one, but the idea in the first century is that people would find a master, they'd find a rabbi, and they would abandon their own life and plans, their future plans, their hopes and dreams. They'd walk away from those things, and they would take on the life of their teacher. They would begin to imitate their teacher, both in the way that he talked, in the way that he thought, in the places he went. That's what discipleship was all about. In the Bible, when we see Jesus call people to be his disciples, he wasn't calling them to attend his church. He wasn't calling them just to come and listen to some of his sermons. He was calling them to walk away from their own plans and then to start imitating him, to take on a life living like Christ. That's what discipleship is all about. So it's no wonder that we see Jesus himself emphasize that in a couple of places. Matthew 11, uh, in verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's no surprise that Jesus was looking at people and saying, I want you to to learn this way of life. I want you to learn from me. Famously in John 13, after he washes the disciples' feet, remember that? He says, you call me teacher. This is verse 13 of John 13. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. 
If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, right? He says, you're supposed to follow me. You're supposed to follow my example. I'm setting you an example that you would live like I do. The reality is that for each and every one of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, the call is for us to live like Jesus, to look like Jesus, to speak like Jesus, to interact and think like Jesus. And I think we sort of hit that mark to varying degrees. I remember... um, when I was a senior in high school, my mom signed me up to be a part of the, uh, the, like the Easter cantata at our church. So we were living in Phoenix, and they, I, you might not even know what a cantata is, but they used to do these like, you know, holiday like musicals. So there'd be a choir and an orchestra, and then there'd be like some kind of drama component. My mom signed me up to be in the drama deal for the Easter thing at, at her church, and uh, I, I got picked to be Jesus in the Easter play, right? Now, clearly, they didn't do a background check. They didn't look at any of my references. I don't know how I got through, uh, but I got chosen to be Jesus in the Easter play, so I had to memorize all these lines, and I remember feeling kind of a weight of responsibility, like all these people in the church are gonna be looking at me, and I'm gonna be like saying Jesus' lines, so I wanna say them the way he would say them. I I wanna do my best, you know? But the big grand finale of the whole Easter play thing was at the end, in the last song, like the grand finale song, they, I was wearing like a harness and they hooked me up to a cable and they take me up into the roof, right? So it's like a, it's like a building like this size, but instead of, um, instead of having a rapture hatch like we have here, there was just like a, a tiny little square opening in the ceiling, right? And so they would, uh, they'd hook me up and then like the choir would start to sing, oh, it, was, it, it sounds like Little Mermaid, but it wasn't Little Mermaid, right? Oh. And people are watching, and here goes Jesus, up, up, up into the sky, right? And people are like, oh, he's flying, you know? And I go up, and I just remember looking down on the people at Easter time, and some of them are crying, they're watching Jesus ascend into heaven. And it was like this really powerful moment, loud music, uh, the choir singing, and I'm going up in the air. The problem was uh, that, that up above the ceiling, there wasn't like a room up there, there was just like a crawl space, right? So it was like a tiny little deal, so you, I'd get about halfway up in, and then there's no more place for me to go. So what they wanted me to do, and what they told me to do, is like once I get a, about waist up into the ceiling, I'm supposed to lock my arms, and then like pull my legs up in and over, right? Kind of swing my legs around. Uh, but the problem with that is, you guys, I have... Um, I have no upper body strength at all. So zero upper body strength. So here's what happens. Jesus starts to go up. People are like, this is so beautiful, incredible moment. Jesus gets about halfway into heaven, and then he can't can't get himself. And so my legs start to kick, you know, and I'm like trying to get up in there. I don't know. I don't know what it looked like from the the ground, but I imagine people are like, this is such a beautiful moment. Oh, no. Oh no, chubby Jesus, he can't get into heaven. He's having trouble sitting at the right hand of the Father. He cannot ascend into glory. And then, so what happened? There's like a tech up there who he could tell that I'm like, whoa, trying to get in. So he grabs me by the collar and just yanks me into the little crawl space, right? So if you're watching from below, it's like at first, Jesus is really struggling to get into heaven and then he just gets sucked in like a pneumatic tube, right? He's gone, right? And uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know whether that was the best image of Jesus for people on Easter, right? I feel like there were parts of that performance that I really rocked, and then there were parts of it that were probably less than what he was actually like, right? The reason I share that story with you is that that's my experience of following Jesus and trying to live like him, kind of wrapped up in a picture, There are moments in my followership of Christ where I'm trying to live and think and and be like Christ, and I feel like I get pretty close, 
But there are other moments where I know that people are watching me and, and, I'm, and I'm painting a terrible picture of what Jesus was like. I know there are times in my life where people are looking at me and in my own selfishness and in my own pride and in my greed and all these other things that clutter up my heart, I'm painting a picture for other people that is less than true of what Christ is. And that becomes a real problem. It becomes a real problem because when I claim the title of Christian, when I say I'm a disciple of Jesus, immediately people start to look at me to understand something of who Jesus is. That's part of my responsibility as a disciple, is to paint a picture. So what kind of picture are we painting? That's part of the question this morning. It was important enough to Jesus that he said it several times, learn from me, follow my example. Every one of the New Testament writers in one point or another illustrates this same idea. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Peter says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. It's a famous verse there that became a, a book called In His Steps that actually eventually became the What Would Jesus Do movement with the bracelets and the bumper stickers, right? This idea of asking the question, what would Jesus do? It says in 1 Peter 2.21 that Jesus set an example that we would follow in his steps. In 1 John, John the apostle says this, 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, he says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In 1 John chapter 2, what the writer there is saying is that that's one of the ways in which we can know that we're abiding in Christ. By looking at our paths, by looking at our steps, by saying, I'm abiding in Christ if I walk the way he walked. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, you've probably heard this one before. The Apostle Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Jesus, essentially. I'm imitating Christ, you imitate me. There is, all throughout the Bible, there's this call for us to be living the life of Jesus, to be living like him, to be putting him on display. It's why it's in our mission statement. It's why we've got all these different, there's so much happening in our church, right? So many various and different things that are happening, but all of them are geared toward this idea of improving our ability to replicate Jesus. We just launched a brand new young adult program that's starting in October called Base Camp. And the goal of Base Camp is to help young adults and college students Follow Jesus, to look more like Jesus. It's a leadership development and discipleship program. This last Wednesday, we launched a deal called Basics, which is a six-week discipleship course on Wednesday nights for people to come and learn about what it means to live like Jesus. There's all kinds of things that are happening, adult fellowships and student ministries and Bible studies and life groups. and you know, There, there are all kinds of things, but they all have the same bullseye. We're aiming at the same thing, which is that we would increasingly... Look and live like Christ. We've recently sort of honed our definition of what discipleship is even, and we've done that out of Hebrews chapter 12. You might remember Hebrews 12. Uh, we studied it when we were studying Hebrews together. Hebrews 12 verses one through three says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
What's the writer of the Hebrews saying? He's saying, look to Jesus. He says it again and again. If you were part of that study with us, we heard it lots of times. Look to Jesus. Set your eyes on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Why? First, so that we can adore him well, but also so that we can imitate him. It says, consider Jesus. Consider his way of living. Consider the way in which he lived up underneath the oppression of others so that when your life is difficult, you'll have a roadmap for how to respond. That consideration, that attention, that focus on Jesus it has the goal of replication. Our, uh, our, our sort of discipleship goal, we've come up with this statement, which is just a summary of Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. But it says, discipleship is working together to grow in the adoration and imitation of Christ and to embrace freedom from anything that would impede or discourage us from this enduring goal. Hebrews 12 says, remove any obstacles or the sin that entangles us. We want to remove anything that would be a hindrance to our imitation and adoration of Jesus. We want to look more like him. You know, uh, every year at Halloween at Hume Lake, when I lived there, I was working with college students at Hume Lake, and every year at Halloween or around that time, there would be like some, one of my students who would get the bright idea to dress up like me for Halloween, you know, and like some of them even went so far as like to talk to my wife and get some of my shoes or one of my shirts or whatever, and the costumes are pretty easy. It's like glasses and a ball cap or whatever. It's not hard to to look this way. I don't work hard at it, right? Uh, But the worst part about that that imitation or the worst part about that costume, every year, whoever decided to do it, they always had to do that thing where they put a pillow up in their shirt. I don't like that, right? I don't like that. That's not what I look like. Thank you, right? And I I just remember like looking and going, well, I I know what you're trying to do, but that's not me, right? At least I I don't feel like it's me, right? I wonder how often the Lord Jesus looks at me And says, man, you know, there's a lot of this that's close, but the way you're treating your neighbor, that's not me. The way you're thinking about this country, that's not me. The way you're managing your money, that's not me. The way you look down upon other people, there are so many places in which the picture I'm painting is not the picture of Jesus. And so it behooves us to look to him, to consider him so that we can replicate him, so that we can put him on. There are a lot of passages that talk about looking and living like Christ, but the reason I chose Romans 13, I know you're wondering, are we ever gonna get to the text we read? Yeah, now we're gonna get to the core text. The reason I chose Romans 13, it's one of many that talk about imitating Christ, but I like the context in which it calls us to that. So here in Romans chapter 13, if you have your Bible, flip over there. Romans chapter 13, Paul is... is, uh, He's calling us to submit to authority, governmental authority specifically. He's saying submit to your leaders because of the sovereignty of God, because of your love for Jesus, submit to your leaders. And in fact, in verse 13, he says, uh, excuse me, in verse seven of chapter 13, Paul says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That seems fairly simple, right? Whatever is owed, pay them what they're owed. And then his his thinking shifts just a little. And when we get to verse eight, here's what he says next. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He says, you shouldn't be indebted. You don't want to be indebted to other people. He says, owe no one anything. I think in the NIV it says, let no outstanding debt remain except the continuing debt to love. Think about that for a second. You don't want to be indebted to anyone. You don't want to have an outstanding debt. But there is one debt, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, that you will never exhaust, that you will never satisfy, that you'll never pay off. 
When you're looking at your ledger of accounts and you're trying to figure out, you know, okay, I've paid off my mortgage and I've paid off my credit cards and I've paid off my car payment or whatever, there is one debt that you will never pay off. There is no point in the life of a follower of Jesus where we ever have the ability to say, you know what, I loved my neighbor this week and I'm done with that. I did a really good job loving other people and I think that just about settles me. No, in Romans chapter 13, it says, let no debt remain except the ongoing, the perpetual, the continual debt to love other people. Well, what is that? why do we have a continual debt to love other people? It's a good question. Why, why am I obligated to do that, right? Why do I have that debt? Well, the debt remains on you and I who are followers of Christ because of his great work on our behalf. Because he came in his love for us and in his pursuit of the glory of God, Jesus came, he took the sin of the world upon himself, He died on the cross and shed his blood. He rose from the dead and extends to mankind by his grace, resurrection life. It's not a trade, it's not an exchange, it's not something you buy. He gives resurrection life by his grace to all of us who are broken and lost and dead in our sin. Jesus came and died for people he knew would use his name as a curse. He came and died for people whose, even their good deeds, it says in the Old Testament, their good deeds were like filthy rags. Jesus washed the feet of those he knew would walk away from him. And so when we follow Jesus, when we follow this Jesus who came to the earth and died for those who didn't deserve it and couldn't earn it, he sets a pattern for us and we become indebted as his followers to the rest of those men and women, all the created men and women that he loves and that we love by extension. It says, let no debt remain except the the ongoing debt to love one another. And he goes one step further in Romans 13 He says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. This is really interesting. What's that mean? Well, the idea here is that as followers of Jesus, sometimes we get our sights set on not doing the wrong things. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, as a follower of Jesus, I don't want to steal. I don't want to be filled with lust. I don't want to commit adultery. I don't want to murder people. And we can get really preoccupied with sort of defining ourselves based on what we're not doing, all the bad things we're not doing. But here in Romans 13, what Paul says is that's not the right approach. The right approach is not just to define yourself based on all the bad stuff you're avoiding, but rather to define yourself by the good stuff that you're doing. That if you will pursue the love of Christ toward your fellow men and women, that all those other things take care of themselves. What does that mean? Well, well, the idea here is if I'm loving others the way Christ loved me, murder's not an option, right? I don't have to go, well, should I? I love them, but should I murder them? I don't know, right? I love these people like Jesus loved me sacrificially, generously, graciously. I love them, but should I steal their stuff? I really want their TV, right? Should I cheat on my wife? I love my wife. Should I cheat on her? No, those questions all get answered, not because I tried really hard not to be an adulterer, or I tried really hard not to be a thief, or I tried really hard not to be hateful, but because I set my sights on replicating and manifesting the love of Jesus, When I take hold of the love of Jesus for mankind, then all the rest of the law takes care of itself. He says, let no debt remain except the continuing, the perpetual debt to love one another. For in love, the rest of the law is fulfilled. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And he goes one step further here too. Look at verse 11. He starts to talk to us about the timing of this. He says, why should love be important to you? 
Why should it be important to you to live like Christ, to love like Christ? He says, because you know what time it is, right? It, it almost feels kind of like something we would say in our culture today, like we gotta get woke, right? He says, he says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What's all that mean? He says, it's time to wake up. I don't know if you have kids that you're in charge of getting ready for school in the morning, but it can be quite a task to get people up out of bed in the morning, right? You knock on the door, the alarm goes off, you poke your head in, you try and be nice and loving, a nice loving voice. Hey, good morning, sunshine. It's time to get up and get ready for your, and then like you go back like five minutes later and nobody's moved, and so then it becomes like, hey, you got school in a minute, right? You gotta figure out what time it is. It's time to wake up. No more time to fool around on your phones. No more time to play Fortnite. No more time, like get some toast in the toaster for goodness sakes, we gotta go, right? Paul looks at us and he says, oh no and anything except the continuing debt to love because you know what time it is. And then I, I think it's, that sort of begs the question, do you? Do you know what time it is? He says it's time for us to wake up from our slumber. Why? Well look at what he says here. He's calling us to vigilance. He's calling us to wakefulness. He's calling us to pay attention. Why? He says, the time has come to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. That means a, that means a couple of things. What does it mean that salvation is nearer to us now? Well, in one sense, we believe, and the Bible teaches, that Jesus is returning. That the Lord Jesus will return in power. He will return triumphant and he will draw the church to himself. In fact, we studied that when we were studying Hebrews. Uh, it says in Hebrews chapter, uh, let's see, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. In Hebrews 9, 27, it says, And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Well, who are those who are eagerly waiting for him? It's those who have heard the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection and have believed in him who've been given new life. We live in a window of time, you and I, a window of time in which belief in Christ, resurrection from the dead, faith in Jesus is possible. You can have a conversation with a coworker or a neighbor or someone in your family. You can talk to somebody in line at the Stater Brothers or at the sushi place about Jesus and their eyes can be opened by the work of God and they can put their faith in Jesus and be made spiritually alive in that moment. That's a narrow window because there is a day coming after the return of Christ in which faith will not only not be possible anymore, it won't be necessary. Faith won't be necessary after the return of Christ because we will see him as he is. All things will be restored, right? So we live in this really cool window of time in which it's possible for people to believe. Paul says, wake up. Salvation is nearer to you now than it was when you believed. That's one piece of it, the imminent return of Christ. We believe that Jesus is returning. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as the labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of light, children of the day. We're not out of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. It's a call to wakefulness. This salvation being nearer to us, in one sense, is talking about the imminent return of Christ. In another sense, it's simply that you and I who are alive today have the ability to see the entire redemptive arc of the story that God is telling. There was a time period in which we could have been born. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were born into a time period where they understood that they needed to be rescued from sin and death. They understood that they needed a redeemer, but they didn't know exactly what that was gonna look like or who that person was gonna be. They didn't totally understand how God was gonna save them. They just knew he would. And their faith was credited to them as righteousness, right? But you and I don't live in a day like that. We live in a day where we can tell the whole story. I can tell you, mankind is broken in their sin. And because of God's great love for us, Jesus came in, in the incarnation. He took our sin upon himself and died in our place. I know the whole thing. I'm nearer to salvation today than I was when I started, not just because Jesus is coming back, but because I have this greater proximity to the, to, to the truth of what Jesus has done. And certainly the people that Paul was writing to in 1 Thessalonians said that, certainly the people he was writing to in Romans 13, they knew the entire redemptive story because Jesus had risen from the dead. They saw the whole thing. He says, wake up. The clock is ticking. There's no time for sleep. I wonder how many of us have become kind of lackadaisical about the window in which we live. I think for many of us, we're happy that we're going to heaven. We're happy that Jesus hears our prayers. We're happy that we're no longer dead in our sin, separated from God. But I don't know that we feel the urgency of the fact that he's appointed us to be ambassadors and we get to live like Christ to carry his love into the world, right? He says, wake up from your slumber. The day of salvation is near. Let's go back to Romans 13. He says, the night is far gone, verse 12. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Some of this will probably sound redundant to those of you who were here last week. Last week we talked about the idea that we have, to, we have to put on love, we have to put on sacrifice, but that in order to do that we also have to take some things off. And we looked at that long list in the text last week. The, the list of sexual immorality, the list of idolatry, of drunkenness, but also of things like envy and jealousy and striving and backbiting, of political maneuvering. There are all these things in that list that are called the, 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 the works of the flesh. And the text we looked at last week said, take those things off and, and put on Jesus, put on love. Here we see another text in Romans 13 that says, that's not who you are. You're not about the works of darkness. You've got to put on the armor of light. Now, when it talks about the armor of light here, it's possible that he's referring to the idea of you know, the, the armor of God we see in Ephesians. But I think it's more likely that he's juxtaposing the deeds of darkness with the deeds of the light. John 3 says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. You and I, we got all kinds of things in our lives that we like to do in the dark corner. You know what I mean? Things that we do that we're actively involved in, things that, we're, that are sort of perpetuating in our lives, but we gotta cover our tracks. We wouldn't necessarily want it on the front page of the newspaper. We don't necessarily publicize it. It's stuff that we tolerate and that we maintain in our lives, but they're deeds of darkness. We looked at that whole list last week and we said all of them can be summarized as what? Sinful self-interest. You look at the deeds of darkness in Romans 13, it's the same thing. He says, let's walk in the day, not in the darkness, not in orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, and jealousy. That's all selfish, sinful self-interest, right? The deeds of darkness, the things I gotta cover up, the things I wouldn't necessarily want on display. 
It's amazing how much time we spend sort of trying to cover our tracks, trying to keep our secrets secrets. What would happen if we put off the deeds of darkness? If instead of maintaining those, instead of tolerating those in our lives, what if instead we put on the armor of light? Well, what is that? The armor of light is simply living an exposed life. It's simply living a life that's open to scrutiny, that other people can see, that what there is to know about me is right here on display. It's the idea of living a life of honesty and purity and integrity, that I'm putting Jesus on display in my honesty, purity, and integrity, even in the, even in the ups and downs of life. I love uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, as Paul's talking about his ministry. 2 Corinthians 6.1 says this, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Right? He says, we don't want to put any obstacles in anyone's way. In everything we do, we're commending ourselves to other people. And then he gives a list. Look at the list. He says, we commend ourselves, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, verse four, here's the list, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and yet, behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. What's he talking about? He's talking about putting on the armor of light. You've seen us, he says. You've seen us in the high points and the low. You've seen us in truthful speech and in genuine love. You've seen us in the work of the Holy Spirit, but you've also seen us when we're beaten and when we're imprisoned and and when people are saying things about us falsely, when we're falsely accused or we're set aside or our opinions are disregarded. We, We haven't done anything but just put this life of Christ on display. Commend ourselves to you for the sake of God's glory. That's the idea of putting on the armor of light. And it says, back to Romans chapter 8, excuse me, Romans 13 and following, he says, let us walk properly as in the day. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I like the picture that's painted here. Make no provision for the flesh. The idea of making provision for the flesh is the idea of, of keeping something alive, feeding it and nourishing it, right? Imagine for a second that you, uh, that you caught a wild animal in your backyard. I don't know, like, or maybe around here we're talking about like a possum or something, right? You catch a possum. And you kind of want to hold on to it. You want to keep it. Now, you're not going to take it, you know, put it on a leash and walk it around the neighborhood because that'd be creepy, right? If you saw me walking around your neighborhood with a possum on a leash, you'd certainly call the cops, right? But you've got this little cage in your closet, the back of your house. You've got this little cage. You put the possum in there and you're keeping it. You're cultivating it, you're nourishing it, you're feeding it, you bring it scraps from the table, you're keeping it alive. The Bible says that's what many of us do with the works of the flesh. 
I think for many of us, when we talk about the works of the flesh, we go, oh no, yeah, I've got sin in my life, but it's, I'm the victim of circumstance, you know? I live in a corrupt culture, you can't even go online without seeing pornography, you don't know my childhood, you don't know all the things that have happened to me, and I get that there are many of us who have been victims of circumstance, but the reality is that for most of us, the works of the flesh that are being made manifest in our lives are not somebody else's fault, they're a little bit of sin that we keep feeding in the closet. We don't want it to die. We don't want to turn it loose. We don't want to go it away. We don't want it to go away. We don't want to take off the works of the flesh. We're making provision for it. We're gratifying its desires. It's alive in our life because we're keeping it alive. Paul says, no, that's not the way of Christ. He says, instead of making provision for the flesh, put on Christ. Put on Christ. It's what we've been talking about, living like Jesus. Jesus says, learn from me, follow me. Follow in his steps, Peter says. Walk the way he walked, John says. Imitate him, Paul says, right? He says, put on Christ. It was a a common Greek expression, this idea of putting on Christ. A common Greek expression that essentially meant imitate in all things. And you might look at that and go, imitate in all things? How am I gonna imitate Jesus in all things? Like that's, that's too daunting, it's too much, right? Well, here's the thing. You don't have to imitate Christ in the way he treated marital relationships. You don't have to imitate Christ in whether or not he murdered people. You don't have to imitate Christ in whether or not he's gonna steal or not steal. All you gotta do is imitate Christ in his love, which is what he's saying here in Romans 13, and all the rest of that stuff takes care of itself, Right? If you're loving like Christ, the rest of the law is fulfilled. So it's not about trying to, you know, cut and splice. How do I imitate Christ in every moment of every day, in every certain detail, in every circumstance? Those things will take care of themselves if you're putting on Christ's love to imitate him in every way. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 verse 9 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And I told some of you the story a couple of years ago, but my, uh, one day my wife calls me at work and she goes, you gotta come home because something weird's happening at the house. And I'm like, what's up? Okay, so, uh, so I, I go home and uh, she says, okay, so I'm washing the dishes and I look out through the back window and I see Lily and Will. And Lily and Will are my two youngest kids, my daughter and my youngest son. And she says, they're in the backyard and, they're, and at first it just looks like they're playing a game, but they're chasing each other around. And she says, as I look closer, I see that Lily has our big family Bible and she's chasing Will around the backyard. And when she catches him, her younger brother, she's hitting him with the Bible. And when she hits him with the Bible, she says, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. And she goes, I'm like, what? You know, so she drops what she's doing and she goes into the backyard and she's like, stop, what are you, what are you doing? Lily, why are you hitting your brother? Why are you hitting with our Bible? Why are you telling him he's going to hell? That's terrible. Why would you do that? And my wife says, both the kids were kind of confused. They were like, why are you mad? Like we were, and literally they looked at her and they're like, we were just playing mean Jesus. (laughs) And my wife goes, What? Mean Jesus, there's no such person as mean Jesus. That's not somebody. What are you talking about? Like, here's the deal. Like, I don't, like, basically that's when she called me. She's like, you gotta come sort this out. I don't know what to do, right? I don't know uh, where my kids came up with this idea, right? Pastor's kids, you guys are a mess. So just know that. That's probably what happened. But uh, I came home and I, and I talked to the kids about this stupid game, chasing him around and saying you're going to hell and They didn't think anything of it, but as I was reflecting upon it, it occurred to me that, you know, in my daily life, when I'm 
when I'm at Stater Brothers or I'm at the sushi place or when I'm at the Circle K or whatever, when I meet people and eventually the conversation comes around to what I do for a living, and they go, oh, what do you do for a living? The moment that I say I'm a pastor at a Christian church, you know what they picture in their mind? Mean Jesus. They picture mean Jesus, and that's such a shame because you, you want to know what? That mean Jesus is not in the pages of this book. You can look cover to cover. Mean Jesus is not told about in the scriptures. He's not there. You want to know why the world in which we live pictures mean Jesus when we tell him that we're a follower of Christ? You want to know why they picture mean Jesus? Not because he's displayed himself that way, but because we have. The reason why the world pictures Jesus carrying a huge Bible and hitting them over the head and saying, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, chasing them around the yard, the reason they picture Jesus that way is not because he has shown himself to be like that, but because we have. We have put mean Jesus on display. And when we talk about being empowered by the Spirit to live like Christ, the idea is that we're, we're putting the truth about Jesus on display in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes, that we are modeling something for people that they've seen nowhere else. In my preparation this week, I, I had to ask myself, how often am I putting on the wrong Jesus? How often am I putting on a false Jesus? I, how often are people looking at me and seeing Jesus the selfish? Or Jesus the power hungry? Or Jesus the judgmental? Or Jesus the racist? Or Jesus the politician? How often are people seeing Jesus the materialist or Jesus the greedy or Jesus the uncompassionate, Jesus the arrogant and aloof, Jesus the inaccessible? How often are people looking at me and seeing Jesus the mean? And yet that isn't the true Jesus. I'm painting a false picture of him when I continue to make provision for the flesh, when I continue to wear the deeds of darkness, when I slumber and sleep despite the fact that the sun is up and the day is wasting. Now the call for us as a body from Jesus, from all of the apostles, is to put him on, to put on the true Jesus so that people would look at us and they would see Jesus, the spirit empowered. That they would see Jesus, the sacrificial, Jesus, the loving, Jesus, the generous, Jesus, the patient, Jesus, the kind, Jesus, the gracious, Jesus, the present and available. All the things that are true about Jesus, when we put them on display in our lives, and the people have the opportunity to see something they might not see anywhere else. The problem for us is that often we're putting on a Jesus that isn't represented in the scriptures. So the call is to let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing, ongoing debt to love one another, to wake up from our slumber, to recognize the day is up, that we're nearer to our salvation now than we've ever been, and so it's time to make no provision for the flesh and to put on the truth about who Christ is, to imitate him in all things, that's what we mean when we say living like Christ. And that's the goal for you and I. Would you pray with me? God, I, I pray that you, would, that you would give us the ability to honestly inventory our lives. That we would be able to look at our own lives and, and assess how often we are putting on a false Christ. That our coworkers and our friends and our family, they, they know that we're your followers and yet the way we put you on is inconsistent with who you truly are. Help us to be people who continue to pay the ongoing debt of love by living like you, by loving like you love and giving like you gave. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.